We're going to begin this morning by reading Psalm 119, verse 57 to verse 64. Word of God says this, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Father, this morning we want to be people who keep your word. And we want to be families committed to keeping your word. We want to be a church united around the the goal of keeping your word. We pray that you would help us this morning not only to understand uh, the words of these verses that we've read, but to apply them to our lives. And we pray that your spirit who inspired these words would press them into our hearts that we might keep your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is week eight in Psalm 119. That means we're a full two months into what the psalmist has to say in this chapter. Uh, At this point, I have some sense that maybe for some of you, hopefully not all of you or many of you, but some of you are starting to think, I get it. I get the point. The chapter's about the Bible. And if you're weary already of the repetition in Psalm 119, I want to give you a piece of uh, insight from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He said this about Psalm 119. He said, as those who drink the Nile water like it better every time they take a draft, so does this psalm become more full and fascinating the oftener you turn to it. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had a drink of water from the Nile River. I have not. So I cannot confirm or deny that it is more satisfying every time you take a drink. But I hope that your experience with Psalm 119 lines up with what Spurgeon is saying here. I hope that as you keep coming back to this chapter... The repetition in what the psalmist has to say about God's Word is not tiresome for you. It's not burdensome for you. But I hope that you find something new in each section to hold on to and to apply to your life. By now you know that we're dealing with an acrostic poem. There are 22 sections in Psalm 119. Those sections correspond with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There is a letter devoted to each section so that within a stanza, the eight lines of poetry uh, all begin with that letter. The first letter of the first word of each line begins with whatever letter of the Hebrew alphabet you're dealing with. And this morning we're dealing with the letter het. It's not heth if you read it in English out of your Bible, but you sort of try to cough something up when you're saying it. And you say, this is the letter het. And so we're looking at this eighth letter, and we're thinking about what does the psalmist have to say to us in this section. Now, repetition is important in making sense of things in Psalm 119. There's 176 verses. The Word of God is mentioned in almost all of them, and the repetition drives home the truth to you that what we're dealing with is a long poem about the Bible, 
a poem in the Bible about the Bible. And if your Bible's open, you can just note the words used in this stanza to refer to Scripture. In verse 57, it's words. In verse 58, it's promise. In verse 59, it's testimonies. In verse 60, it's commandments. In verse 61, law. 62, rules. 63, precepts. 64, statutes. So the repetition tells you we're dealing with the Bible. In this stanza, what specifically are we dealing with? And the key is repetition. And you may have noticed that three times in this stanza, the psalmist uses the word keep. So if your Bible's open, you can look at verse 57. He says, I promise to keep your words. In verse 60, he says, he will not delay to keep God's commandments. And if you look at verse 63, he says that he's a companion of all who fear God. And those who fear God are those who keep God's precepts. That's the big idea, keeping God's word. The people of God are called to keep God's Word, called to keep His Word. The three-fold repetition drives that truth home. And even in the verses where he doesn't use the word keep, he says things that indicate to us that he is going to keep God's Word. So in your Bible, you'll notice in verse 59, he says that he's going to turn his feet towards God's testimonies. He wants to orient the direction of his life to be in line with God's Word. Notice what he says in verse 61. He says, I will not forget. It is impossible for you or me or anyone to keep God's Word if you forget God's Word. And so he says, I'm going to orient my life in the direction of your Word. I'm not going to forget your Word. And in verse 62, he says, I'm going to rise at midnight to talk about your righteous rules. In other words, your word is not just going to be part of my life in this room, in this hour, one little time, place during the week when we have church, but it's going to be part of every aspect of my life. I'm going to move my life in this direction. I'm not going to forget it. I'm going to rise at midnight to proclaim it. In other words, I'm going to keep it. That word keep is the Hebrew word shamar. And it's a super important word in the Bible, shamar. What the word literally means is to keep or to watch or to guard or to preserve or to obey. That's the call from this stanza, to keep God's word. What does that mean? Well, we're going to watch it, we're going to guard it, we're going to preserve it, we're going to obey it, we're going to keep it. The people of God are called to keep The Word of God. Now, before we deal with how that happens, let's establish one basic biblical truth before we move on. In the Bible, there is a connection between keeping God's Word and receiving blessing from God. Those two things go together. They fit together. The Bible promises blessing for those who will keep his word. This is not just a Psalm 119 idea. This is not just a New Testament idea or an Old Testament idea. It's a Bible idea. If your Bible's open, you might just flip all the way to the beginning to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read about God creating Adam and Eve. He creates these people in his image. He creates them 
and he speaks to them. He talks to them. He gives his word to these people. He communicates with them. He placed these people in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. And I just want you to note what you read in Genesis 2 verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and what? Keep it. Same word. Shamar. To keep it. To watch it. To guard it. To protect it. To maintain it. To obey God's call on his life as the one responsible for this garden. Adam and Eve were placed there to keep the garden. How'd they do? Not very good. They rebelled against God. They listened to the serpent rather than to the creator. And these creatures that had been blessed by God. God blessed them in Genesis 1. He blessed them and he made them in his image and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over everything that I've created. God's blessing was on these people, but after they failed to keep his word, God's curse was upon them. You read about that in Genesis 3. There was no more blessing on them, but there was a curse on them. The curse of death and the curse of separation from the presence of God. Blessing tied to keeping Not keeping, tied to the curse of God. It's not just Genesis, it's all the way through the Bible. Take your Bible and look at Psalm chapter 1. This is how the book of Psalms opens. It's the very first chapter in the longest book in the Bible. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. How many times have we come across that idea of delight in Psalm 119? Quite a few. He delights in God's word. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How often have we talked about meditating and knowing and keeping God's word in Psalm 119. Blessing is tied to that right here at the beginning of the book of Psalms. What about the New Testament? Well, flip all the way to the end, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, just so you don't think this is an Old Testament principle. Revelation 1 verse 3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now, understand Revelation was written in Greek, not Hebrew, and I'm not suggesting to you that this is the Hebrew word shamar, but it's the same word translated from Hebrew into Greek and now into English for us. Blessed are those who read it. Blessed are those who hear it. Blessed are those who keep it. Look at Psalm 119. How does Psalm 119 begin? Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. They do no wrong, but they walk in His ways. Blessing and keeping. What about the last verse we talked about last week? Just jump up above verse 57 to verse 56. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Blessing and keeping. Again, these ideas are connected. The danger 
and pointing this biblical principle out to you. The danger is that you walk away saying, the preacher told me that if I try to be really good and do a lot of good things, probably more good things than bad things, that God will just pour all sorts of blessing into my life and you will fill in the blank on what those blessings are. That's not what the preacher said this morning. The preacher said there is a connection in the Bible between those who keep God's Word and those who are blessed by God. I just want to start this morning by thinking about the psalmist. Psalmist lived a long time ago. He lived in what we would call the Old Covenant. His story is told in the Old Testament. And I just want to back up, and before we think about us, let's think about the psalmist. Let's try to get into his headspace. What would it mean for an Old Covenant, Old Testament believer to keep God's Word? What would that look like in the psalmist's life? When he says, we're going to keep it, we're going to keep it, I'm going to hang out with those who keep it, what sorts of things does he have in mind? I think he has several things in mind. Number one, I think that he's probably thinking about studying and doing and teaching God's Word to His people. Those things are involved in keeping God's Word. You see that in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10, where we read that Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. Law, statutes, rules, all words we pull right out of Psalm 119. And Ezra had done three things. Ezra said, I'm going to set myself out to study it first, I need to know it, and then I'm going to live it, I'm going to do what it says, and then I'm going to tell other people about it. I think Ezra's action in Ezra 7.10 was programmatic for every faithful Hebrew. They might not have stood on a platform in front of a mass of Jewish exiles like Ezra did, but all of them were called to study God's Word to do God's Word, and to tell someone else about God's Word. That's part of what it means to keep God's Word. Secondly, I think for the psalmist, keeping the Word of God involved loving, fearing, and worshiping the one true God. Loving, fearing, and worshiping the one true God. I think you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, a verse that any faithful Hebrew would recite daily, a passage known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You should love Him. You shouldn't just go through the routine of keeping His Word and studying to get the right answer just as an external thing, but it should be genuine from your heart. Yes, you should study. Yes, you should do. Yes, you should teach. But you should also love God. The one true God, Yahweh, your God. And not only should you love Him, but you should love your neighbor. You should love your neighbor as yourself. That's the third thing. Keeping God's Word for the Old Testament believer meant loving your neighbor as yourself. That's not just a New Testament idea. That's all the way back in the law in Leviticus 19.18, where God says to His people, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I'm Yahweh. I'm the Lord. I'm your God. You love me, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So that's pretty simple so far, right? How does the psalmist or a hypothetical old covenant believer, how do they keep God's Word? Well, they're going to study it. They're going to do it. 
They're going to teach it. They're going to love Yahweh more than anyone or anything else with everything that they have, all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they're going to love their neighbor as themselves. Just through those first three, how did the Hebrew people do with that? Not so good, right? They didn't do good at any of those things. And that didn't take God by surprise. In fact, one of the things you see is that worked in, baked in, built into the very law of God, baked into His Word, is something that we call the sacrificial system. And keeping God's Word for an Old Testament believer meant participating in the sacrificial system. I gave you the example of Leviticus chapter 16, which you can read on your own. It's the the instructions for the Day of Atonement. Once a year on this day, God told His people, gather together in this place at the tabernacle or at the temple. The high priest would initiate the proceedings by offering a sacrifice for his sins. And only when a sacrifice had been offered for his sins could he then represent the people. And there was two animals taken and one was killed and the blood was shed on the altar. And the other one, the sins were confessed on the head of it and it was driven away into the wilderness as a picture that God had removed or called to travel to the tabernacle or to the temple to celebrate. Many of them throughout the year. They were doing these things over and over and over all the time, participating in this sacrificial system. Can I remind you of one important truth about this sacrificial system? It's that never, 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 not a single time did any of those Old Testament sacrifices actually, truly, really, effectively deal with sin. None of them. Look at what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you know why it's impossible? It's because as I look around the room, I think I can see everybody, the lights are bright, but you're not bulls or goats. You're human beings created in the image of God. And if your sin is going to be taken away, an animal is not going to work. Someone like you has to come and die as a sacrifice in order for your sins to be taken away. The blood of the bulls and the goats took away the sins of no one. Why did they do it? Why all the sacrifice, the blood, the offerings? Why all this stuff in the sacrificial system? Number one, to remind the people that they were sinful people. There's a daily, regular, ongoing reminder. You have not submitted your life to God's Word and loved God with all your heart, nor have you loved your neighbor as yourself. You've fallen short of that, and the people needed to be reminded of that regularly. You and I need to be reminded of that. What a tragedy that we live in an age when people go to churches where the church is intentionally set out to never talk about sin. To never remind people that you have fallen short of God's glory. They needed that reminder. We need that reminder. So in this sacrificial system, there's a reminder of sin. There's also the hope of a substitute to come. This idea of substitution is ingrained in God's people. You deserve death. But what if there was a substitute? Not a bull, not a goat, not a lamb. Not a dove, not food as a wave offering, 
What if there were a substitute who were like you in every respect yet without sin and he could die as a sacrifice so that you could live? That's what the sacrificial system was intended to teach God's people. It's funny, really, that you and I gather together in this room. We read out of this book every week. I don't know if you've noticed, but 75% of it's Old Testament. About three out of four pages in this book are Old Testament. We read this book. We live thousands of years after the events in this book. We live clear on the other side of the world from where these events took place. I haven't checked your genealogy and your DNA report from Ancestry.com. We don't ask for that when you join this church. But looking around the room, I don't think many of us have a shred of Jewish DNA. Maybe some of us do. Maybe you have a great-grandma back there or something like that. But most of us, we're not Jewish. We're not Hebrews. I know that I've been teaching you the Hebrew alphabet each week, but I don't think anybody in this room speaks biblical Hebrew. I don't. Just because you know the alphabet doesn't mean you know a language. And yet we gather together in this room and we read this book, thousands of years old, a Jewish book, 75% Old Testament, Abraham and his family. It's the story of, of their lives and how they fared. We worship and we sing to and we sing about and we celebrate the crucifixion of a Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth. And we take all these Old Testament stories and we teach them in Sunday school and VBS and all the rest as if they're actually our stories. I just wonder, when's the last time you kept a Passover? Some of you may say, well, this one time I went to a Seder meal and it was really a Lord's Supper, but we kind of pretended like it. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a real Passover, the last time you celebrated a real bona fide Passover. I'm wondering the last time you went through the line at Rose's and asked the lady taking your order if the tacos were kosher. Anybody? Nobody? I'm wondering how many of you went into the closet this morning and grabbed a garment off the hanger and checked the label to see if it was a mixture of materials, because that's in the Old Testament. Don't wear garments of more than one type of fabric, so if you've got a cotton poly blend, I don't know. When's the last time you offered a burnt offering? I'm not talking about deer season. I'm talking about a real burnt offering. You slaughtered an animal to offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord in accordance with the sacrifices spelled out in the Old Testament. You know, sometimes people ask these kinds of questions to Christians. Just in the last month, I've had several people talk to me about, hey, this is in the Bible. Why don't we do that thing? Hey, this is in the Bible. Why don't we do that thing? And you need to understand that the people who ask those questions are often trying to poke fun at you. They're often trying to mock you. They're often trying to say to people like you and me, oh, you say you believe this book, but what about this and what about this? You just cherry pick the things you like and you ignore the things you don't like. And that could not be further from the truth. If you've read the whole book, 100% of the book, 
then you understand that we actually have very good reason for not offering burnt offerings anymore. And we actually have pretty good reason for not worrying about whether or not our food is kosher, our clothes have polyester or cotton, our crops are planted two kinds in one single field. We actually have good reason to celebrate the Lord's Supper together regularly and not the Passover, even though God told His people to celebrate it forever. There's good reasons for that, and the good reason has a name. It's Jesus. He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So we're not going to scrape any of them away. We're going to read them. We're going to learn from them. We're going to listen to them, but we're going to see how they were fulfilled in Jesus. And so the question comes to us, how do we keep this book? What would it look like for us as new covenant believers to be people who keep this book? Well, number one, I think that we should study it and do it and teach it. Sound familiar? It's straight out of 1 Timothy. It's almost parallel with what Ezra set his heart to do, to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, look, you're going to have to study to show yourself approved. You're going to have to learn this book, Timothy, the Scriptures. Timothy, you're going to have to make sure your life matches your doctrine. You can't just study this book, but you actually have to live it, Timothy. You have to do it. Timothy, with this book, you have to teach God's people what it says. You have to be ready in season and out of season to reprove and to rebuke and to correct and to teach God's people what it says. It's no different than Ezra 7.10. Study it, do it, teach it. Secondly, for us, Keeping the Word of God involves loving, fearing, and worshiping the one true God. We say that on the authority of Jesus Himself, who, when He was asked by His enemies, which is the greatest command in the law, and in the Jewish mind there were 613 of them, 613 options and a multiple choice test, Jesus didn't pull any from the Ten Commandments in Exodus or Deuteronomy. Instead, He pulled the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, which we've read earlier. You should love God. Jesus said, this is the greatest. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No change. Just love God. With everything that you have, more than anything or anyone else, love God, fear God, worship God. And Jesus said, not to be outdone and to be limited to one command, Jesus said, you also need to love your neighbor as yourself. And he didn't invent that. He pulled it from Leviticus 19.18. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's pretty simple, right? What does it look like for us to keep God's Word? Where it means that we submit our lives to His Word and our thinking and our doing and our teaching. And it means that we love God more than anyone or anything else in the world, with everything that we have and all that we are. And it means always in every single situation, even on 42nd Street, we love our neighbor as ourself. How are you doing? I was tempted as I wrote out my notes, I was tempted to, to write down the words, I don't know about you, but I know that I'm not doing so well at those three. 
And I'm not doing so well at those three. I've not done so well at those three. I've fallen short of that. But I actually have it on good authority that you're not doing well either. And that authority is the Bible that says all have fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned. And the wages, the consequence, the due that you have coming as a sinner standing before a holy God is death. We're not doing too well at all. You know, in the Old Covenant, we added one more. We said that these people were participating in a sacrificial system, not because those sacrifices took away their sins, but because it reminded them of their sins and it pointed them forward to a substitute to come. We live in the New Covenant, so we would add a fourth that says this, keeping the Word of God involves responding to the gospel message. That is part of keeping God's Word. When I challenge you this morning to be people who keep the Word of God, I have no expectation that you will go out and be perfect this week. You won't. But part of keeping God's Word, guarding God's Word, watching God's Word, listening to God's Word, obeying God's Word, part of doing that is responding to the Gospel. And you see this in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? You understand, many of you, that it literally is the good news. It is good news for people who have not submitted their lives perfectly and fully to God's Word, who have not loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who have not always loved their neighbor as themselves. God has good news for you. And I just want to talk to you about that good news. Some of you could stand on this platform and you could talk about the good news with more eloquence than I'm about to do. Some of you are kind of fuzzy on it. As I talk about it, the pieces are going to feel like they fall into place, but you're not sure that you could articulate it on your own. And some of you, I have no doubt, don't know the good news. All of us need to be reminded of the good news. Not only do we need to be reminded of our sin, but we need to be reminded of the good news. So let's just talk about the gospel. It's a message that begins not with us, but with God. The one true God who in the beginning created everything and everyone that exists. All of it. Every last star, galaxy, nebula, all the way down to the smallest amoeba, it's all His. Belongs to Him. And He created human beings, as we've talked about already, in His image to know Him, to love Him, to fear Him, to worship Him. And just like Adam and Eve, you and I have done a lousy job of that. We have fallen short of God's glory and His plan for our lives. But one of the things that the Bible says about God is that He is not quick to anger. That's not to say that He never gets angry or that He's not wrathful towards sinners. It just means that the Bible never says He's quick to anger. It says that He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for sinners. And from the very beginning, 
Genesis 3, God began to promise His people that someday He would do something to defeat the serpent and to save His people. He would send a substitute. Someone that could truly take our place in death. And the Bible says that in the fullness of time, at the perfect time, Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. He was made like us in every respect, yet He was without sin. Sinless, spotless, pure, whole, complete. And He died on a cross not for His sin because He had none, but for our sin. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him and to put our iniquities on Him. Isaiah 53. The curse, Galatians 3, that should have rightly fallen to us was placed on Jesus on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the one who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we sinful people could be made righteous. He died for us. It wasn't like the death of bulls and goats. It was the only real sacrifice for sin that has ever happened. Jesus commands every person on the planet to do two things. Repent and believe. Repent means to change your mind. Change your mind about God. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about life. Change your mind about the Bible. Change your mind and agree with God on everything. Submit your life and your thinking and all that you are to His Word. That's repentance. And believing means believing the good news about Jesus Christ, the gospel. Believe it. It sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? That Jesus would die for you and that all He would call you to do is to turn from your old way of thinking and to believe the truth about Him. You say to yourself, and we say to ourselves, well, but I also have to be really good, right? I need to contribute. I need to chip in a little bit. Jesus has done a lot, but I need to add to that. You don't need to add anything to it. When He died on the cross, His dying words were, it is finished. It's paid. Repent and believe the gospel. You understand that the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible says just four verses later, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let me just try to be clear. What I'm attempting to lay out for you in Psalm 119 is the very simple idea that there has been, there is now, and there will always be one way of salvation for sinners. There has been, there is now, and there will always be only one way to keep God's Word. And it begins with saying, God, I want to repent and I want to agree with you. I want to submit my thinking and everything that I am to the authority of your word. And God, I know you've called me to love you supremely and love my neighbor as myself, but I've made a mess of that. 
I haven't done that perfectly. But I believe that you have provided in your word a provision that I don't deserve. You provided a substitute who would die for me. God's people in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, any of them, all of them, they've been saved by God's grace. God's grace in providing a substitute. These Old Covenant believers looked forward in faith to the substitute that would come. You and I, New Covenant believers, we look backward in faith to the substitute who came, but it all centers on Jesus, and it's all a manifestation of God's grace, and that's right here in Psalm 119, verse 57 to 64. Look what he says in verse 61. Psalm 119, 61. The cords of the wicked ensnare me. I know that in the next verse he says, I don't want to forget your law. But he also is honest to say, you know what? I get snared up and tripped up and entangled with wickedness. He knows himself. And he's confessing his sin to God. Look what he says in verse 64. The earth, O Lord is full of your steadfast love. He doesn't say the earth is filled with your wrath and your anger and you're quick to anger and you're just ready to snap and blow us away in an instant. But he knows that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast covenant faithful love. And he says, God, the whole earth is filled with it. Look what he says in verse 58. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. 